This episode of CBO Speaks is brought to you by Kaufman Hall. Learn about their strategic and financial consulting services and Axiom planning software by visiting kaufmanhall.com forward slash higher education. Welcome to CBO Speaks, the official podcast of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission for this podcast is to ask chief business officers to reflect on their careers, share personal examples of the ways they have navigated challenging situations, and offer some lessons that they've learned from their experience as a CBO. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of research and tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to CBO Speaks. Thanks so much for joining us today. My name is Megan Strand, your host, and I am thrilled to be joined today by Matt Fajak, who is Vice President for Financial Affairs at the University of Alabama. Welcome, Matt. It's great to be talking to you. Well, to get us started today, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how you came to higher ed as a profession. I know that you were in the private sector, um, at least at the beginning of your career, but how did you how did you end up in higher ed? Uh, it's an interesting story. So I, I worked for a private equity firm. That uh, was kind of it was slowing down a bit in its operations, and my wife though was a teacher and an assistant principal, and I went to a party and there was a headhunter there that did mostly higher ed, and we just started talking about opportunities and I left and didn't think anything of it, and then six or seven months later he called me up and said, Kent State University is looking for somebody that has no higher ed background, that there's somebody in business that has a silver bullet. And uh, and my, I was from that area, so I thought it'd be great to go back home and moved back to Kent. And six months later, my mom moved to Cincinnati. So she says she still loves me, but. <laughs> so maybe reflecting back, how long were you in the private sector, Matt? Uh, 21 years. Oh, goodness. And how long have you been in higher ed, then? So 14 years now. Okay. So can you reflect back on your time in uh, the private sector and think back to when you first started your career in higher ed? How how did working in the private sector help you transition to academia? Did did that did you actually have the silver silver bullet when you arrived at Kent State? No, there there really is no silver bullet. Um, it's easier to talk about you know what the the differences and and sure. how hard the transition was. The number one difference is that I was in the business before and when I was in the private equity company, we invest in distressed companies. We we're trying to take a company that's a two and turn it into a four or five and then sell it. Higher ed really is an eight or a nine trying to become a 10. And that to be going from an eight or a nine to a 10 is, is much more difficult than going from two to five. And it takes a, a lot of, uh, cons- not consensus, but it takes a lot of input from diverse thinking about a lot of different issues um, to try to make that change. And I was very used to doing things with maybe talking to one or two people before we actually made changes. Uh, so that was it, that was probably the most interesting thing. I, you know, at, at Kent State, I did get slapped around a few times. The president would say, yeah, we should go do that. And I'd go do it. And then I'd get called back into his office and he'd be really upset because I didn't talk to all the right committees and the right people and get it all approved and, and through the same processes. So that's in that way, it was very different. But on on what I do believe that my background in 
private business and especially in distressed companies and having to make changes was I, I like change um, and I, I think experimenting is very important and it's interesting universities love to experiment on the research side but they really don't like to experiment with their processes and their business administration um, and I think the the experience of of doing ex experimenting and changing and trying new things uh, to see what works I think private business gave me that background to bring it in into higher ed and always looking at, at ways we can do things better and not satisfied with the status quo. Can you talk a little bit more about experimenting? Do you have any examples of things or ways that you might experiment with something that might be a little bit out of the norm of what's typically done? Yeah, well, I think, you know, in, in many areas processing, we'll take um, electronic invoicing is a very simple uh, process that, that we changed that nobody really wanted to do it. They were afraid of it, that bills wouldn't get paid on time, that they wouldn't be able to order from people. And so we just tried it with a couple vendors uh, to see how it worked and, and feeding it through the pipeline. And as someone once told me is, you know, think big, start small, move fast. Uh, and I, I try to live to that, that quote every day um, and, and experiment with a number of, of different processes, whether that's in shared services or budget models. Um, we did, we built, at, when I was at Florida, we built a whole new budget model that was responsibly center management kind of aligned. Um, and, but we started it with one department and how that would work and experiment with what kind of, how that would incentivize deans and chairs to, to work and do things differently. And, and we carefully went through that. Uh, before we rolled it out to the whole university. So I think, you know, you, you have to take those risks and experiment a little um, to get any any good changes done. And do you find that that helps you build consensus among all those people you were just talking about that, you know, you have to connect with all of the necessary stakeholders? I think it, it gives you a, if the, if the project is successful, and then we'll take the case of the, of the budget model, that dean really enjoyed the experience, saw all the benefits of it. So having him on my side when trying to roll it out to the rest of the university was very helpful. Now, I've had other circumstances where it gave people a lot of time to build up their defenses uh, <laughs> against mm -hmm. something that was going on uh, because they heard it instead of it being thrust on them more quickly. Uh, and so it, but usually it works to the advantage of getting consensus and getting people to really understand what you're trying to do uh, and and buying in and gives them time to put in their ideas and thoughts also. So outside of consensus building, when you first came into higher ed, is there anything else you wished you had known before stepping foot? Oh, yeah. I think it, the consensus building is by far uh, the biggest area where I wish I had understood the, the committees. And, and it really was... It, it, and it wasn't just consensus building for the sake of consensus. It, it really does take a diversity of thought um, on how, how, what consequences there are to different actions and changes, um, not just build consensus for the sake of it. You still have to go through the committees and get the buy-in. Um, I think the other is I never realized the difference between business. It's pretty easy to measure success. Everybody has the same goal 
and goals are aligned. You want to increase shareholder value. You can argue about how you're going to do it, whether it's it's uh, you know short-term profits, long-term profits. You're going to sell more in the Northeast. You're going to spread to Europe. So there's some tactics you may change, but everybody's overall strategic goals to increase shareholder value and everybody's aligned with that higher ed is i found much more difficult to manage in because everybody's here for a different reason and their goals aren't necessarily aligned some people want to educate more students and have you know make it affordable and a lot of access other people are here for the quality they want to have the highest quality education possible and the most opportunities for the students other people are here for the research. They don't really care about the education aspects. They just they want to push their research out, get published, get inventions, get patents. Um, and other people are here, of course, for public service. And so there's a, a lot of different agendas on a, a campus and trying to, to align all of those can be very difficult. And along with that is, is you know, business relatively easy to measure success. You know, you have return on investment or shareholder value, earnings per share. Pretty easy to put a numerical judgment on how well you've done. Higher ed's much more difficult because there's so many different missions of people out here. You know, is it the total amount of research? Is it the number of publications? Is it the number of inventions or the new company startups? It's it's a much vaguer measurement of of the success of a university. So you've been in higher ed for 14 years. So clearly you, you this has been a good career change for you. What do you love about being in higher ed? Well, I think I believe it's the most noble profession uh, there is. I mean, education is is the one item that can bridge the social economic gap that can people can move from economically challenged life and be successful in college and and have a successful career and, and move up that economic ladder. Uh, and research is what makes our lives better every day, whether it's the life science research that we live longer, we have less illness, we're healthier, or if it's, you know, engineering and high tech research and giving us iPhones and and other technology that's just amazing that you can't imagine what it was like to live with you know, 10 years ago, that almost all of that technology at some time started at a university. Let's switch gears a little bit, Matt, and talk about your current role at the University of Alabama. What would you say is most exciting about your job today? The University of Alabama is very focused on the students, and they have a diverse mix of students, both from ethnic, social diversity, um, but economic, but also in educational attainment. Alabama takes in a lot of very high quality students, but it has some also a large number of students that are more challenged academically. And Alabama has done is continuing to do and has done an outstanding job um, of working with academically challenged students and helping them become very successful in their college careers. So very student centric, and it it's amazing the things that they're doing with with students. Anything that you as a CBO are working on currently or have upcoming that's particularly interesting to you? Yeah, we, we have a number of initiatives. Efficiency is, as our growth has started to slow down um, a little bit, we are we're going to have to find some efficiencies to, to continue to grow uh, our quality and to able to 
give students the, the student-faculty ratio and the, the smaller class sizes that we need to be successful. So, you know, my support of that um, in becoming more efficient, we're starting a number of processes. I don't think we're ready to go to, to shared services yet. Um, that's, a, that's a big step that's been difficult for many colleges, but I think down the road, um, a shared service environment will work and, and everybody knows I'm a big fan. I don't know why when you're in a public state system, every university in the state has to have an accounting shop and an HR shop and an IT shop um, that we could we could combine those and consolidate those and have much smaller uh, branches at the campus. Not saying I'm ready to do that tomorrow, but that's my long-term goal um, is to try to make that something like that work. And I think there's hundreds of millions of dollars of savings uh, in by doing that. Matt, what are you doing now that you never imagined you would have been doing maybe 10 or even 20 years ago? No, certainly 20 years ago, I never imagined I'd, I'd be in higher education uh, and and working in that area and, and never imagined that it was so, it was as exciting and dynamic as it was, but, and it is. 10 years ago, after I did get into higher education and and what is new is, is just the, I think the breadth of opportunities that exist. I don't, I'm not one that says universities are administratively bloated. I don't think we are. I don't think there is a large amount of, of waste um, but there are, you know, technology, with technology, there's some things we could do better. Um, I think we're, we are slower to adapt to that technology and adopt new technology than businesses. There's not as much pressure on us to, to change, to survive. Um, and I think just is really working on uh, the level of detail that I'm working on on trying to improve business processes and adapt technology is much greater than I ever expected um, that to be even after four or five years in higher education. What would you say is the biggest challenge that faces all CBOs today? What's keeping you all up at night? So what keeps the, the two, two areas that really keep me up at night, one is safety. And safety is by far what keeps me up at night, whether that's um, student drinking and, and the problems that go along with student drinking um, and fraternities and game day operations and that aspect. And, you know, the, the active shooters and, and other terrorist evil kinds of behavior that have been occurring um, across our country. That's probably the biggest thing that keeps me up. And, and we're having to do a lot of things of, of retraining officers on how to recognize uh, mentally unstable people uh, and how to train many, you know, even teachers on how to recognize that, professors how to recognize that, um, and people how our, you know, and grow our counseling system to deal with that uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and we, like most public universities, are very open campuses. People can come in and out of campuses and, and we promote free speech. Uh, and that can cause conflict and, and lead to violent behavior. And so that's by far the, the biggest thing that keeps me up at night. Um, and then more on, on the financial side is how do we, with, with, for the most part, appropriations decreasing, at least on a real basis, uh, year after year, 
tuition levels uh, up at where we think you know we increase tuition much more we'll actually lose revenue and lose enrollment uh, so how do we continue to grow uh, both in the in quality and number of students and still deal and provide a quality product and provide quality facilities uh, is uh, the two most challenging areas that I, I worry about. And then on the flip side, what would you say is the biggest opportunity that faces all CBOs today? Well, there is a, uh, there's one, there's, there's lots of opportunities out there. There's, as I said before, the technology changes every day and is, is amazing what you can do with that technology to try to improve processes um, and improve cycle times, cut costs. Um, so there is a lot of opportunities that are out there. And, you know, the other big thing is we have a lot of very smart people, whether in administration or in the faculty, that we get to work with every day um, that, that can help you achieve your goals. And, and if you let them help them understand what your barriers and what your hurdles are, that they can, they can come up with some great solutions um, but they, they have to believe you're open and honest and transparent with the, the faculty also. Uh, but they are some of the smartest people in the world, and they, they do want to help. Matt, who would you say has served as a professional mentor to you over the years? And what maybe you can, you can think of somebody specific and then let me know what you feel you've learned from him or her. Well, I'd say there's a number. You know, the first person I worked with, it was Dave Kramer, who's now the CFO at, at Miami University, and he uh, Dave is um, very detail oriented. He's uh, he's he has a, a good level of skepticism, so he, he's constantly worried about what's around the next corner, and he's always thinking about what changes need to be made. He's he's certainly not complacent. Um, and he's he expects a lot out of out of his team, um, and but mainly yeah, his skepticism and, and concern, and he has true passion for students and for the university. So his skepticism and his worry about what may be coming down the road and and how we're going to deal with it, and his proactive approach to to change has influenced me a, a lot. And so David Kramer was a great mentor to me in my first few years. Um, and then Bernie Matchin, who was the president at Florida and really had a passion for moving the University of Florida up into a, a top 10 university. And he taught me a lot of, more about what was what's really important on a, the university side you know, of where, you know, reputation is the coin of the realm and trying to improve that reputation and how important that is to our alumni and our students and how important it is to track the best faculty um, and growing growing our research uh, in that area. So those are probably two of two of my great mentors before I was in higher education. Um, there, you know, Alan McCarter, who I worked in an airline with that we the private equity company got involved with had a uh, very interesting management style that I, I didn't really understand and couldn't put words in it until I read recently there's a book by Daniel Coyle that's come out, The Culture Code, which is putting teams together that can, that can speak openly. There's trust and safety in those teams. 
Uh, and so people are, there's not a hierarchical concern about where do I play in this, in this group and creating that safety so people can throw out their ideas and put them out there and, and they don't feel at risk when they're throwing out, you know, what kind of changes they want to make. And we can all share openly our thoughts without, without it being uh, perceived as attacking that person. And, and that's really is creating a culture. And Alan McCarter did a great job of, of teaching me that culture. And I think where he got it was he was the he flew for the Thunderbirds um, back, I guess, in the 70s. Wow. And those teams, they had to trust each other because when they all turned right, if one of them didn't, you know, a lot of people were going to die. And so they had that, that tr they had to build that trust. And, and like I said, he didn't never really put it into the right words. And I could never for years, couldn't put it into the right words. Um, and Daniel Coyle has done a nice job of putting it into the, the words that I think represent how Alan uh, managed and how I try to manage now. That's great. It sounds like you've had a lot of fantastic mentors over the years. Would you say that um, you have done similar things to try to encourage those to whom you are a mentor in higher ed? Um, that's, it's the area that I probably could do better in, in mentoring uh, people more specifically, but I, I do believe very much in professional development. So wherever I've been, I've, I've improved the professional development, tried to do a lot more with our senior management, middle managers around leadership and change management, not just you know, how to work an Excel spreadsheet or, you know, those kind of trainings, but, but really develop them as, as leaders. So I've tried to do that through training. And then of course I've tried, I try to better, especially now to articulate my style and why I think I can be successful. And, and people for the most part, I think like working for me and they like, and therefore they, they like to be successful and get things done because you just like to do, when you like somebody, you'd rather get it done than not done. And and they trust me and I trust them. Um, so I think just through my behavior and the way I manage, hopefully I can I can mentor them in that way. And I, I need to do a little bit more in the way of formally putting a program together of how to mentor some of my up and coming superstars. Well, and it sounds like you kind of take a systemic approach to mentoring versus, you know, a one-on-one -on -one, um, more formalized yes. way to approach it. Matt, anything else you'd like to share that I've neglected to ask you today? Well, it is, as I said, it is, uh, it's a very noble profession and, and we should all have a great passion for what we do and what, and the, and what we support. We're not the front line, we're not professors, but we can do a lot to, to help a university to, whether to be more efficient so that you can have more faculty members, um, better customer service to faculty so that they can spend more time working on their research and teaching and and doing the better things so it's just every day try to wake up with the, with that passion of how to how to make our each of our universities better well thank you so much matt for your time today and for sharing just a few of your insights and reflections with me today my pleasure it's been great enjoyed talking to you you can find out more about Matt in today's episode by visiting the conferences and e-learning section and then click podcasts at nakubo.org. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts so that you'll get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Matt and myself, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us for this episode of CBO Speaks.
This episode of CBO Speaks is brought to you by Kaufman Hall. Learn about their strategic and financial consulting services and Axiom planning software by visiting kaufmanhall.com forward slash higher education. 